Hi, this is Sean Doyle, and you're listening to Toro Town Talks. The day job of Sean Doyle is to be a lawyer, and throughout his career, he has resolved roughly 10,000 disputes. However, he is also an author within the poetic nonfiction genre, and his current book is entitled Mutt and Dreams, Essays on Falling More Deeply in Love with Life. In the introduction to the book, Sean writes, I passionately believe there is beauty all around us and reason for hope. I'm confirmed in my faith again and again in the goodness of people and that we have at our fingertips access to so much meaning and promise, if only we would let ourselves see. In this day and age of perpetual political conflict and apocalyptic stories on the news, Sean's message is a particularly upbeat and hopeful one. In this interview, I talked to Sean about the process of writing these essays, about how his work as a lawyer has affected his general philosophy on life, and whether or not nice guys in fact finish first. My first question for Sean is how long he'd wanted to sit down and write this book. I had started and stopped books for years, um, over the years. When I first finished college in 1990, I knew I wanted to write. And I felt like my basis in reading wasn't strong enough. Uh, so at that point, I set out to read at least one book by every winner of the Nobel Prize, nice. uh, which should, you know, in, in the interim, I got married and went to law school and had kids. And but I've, you know, I've read at least one of the works by every Nobel laureate. Uh, but this book in particular, it was about four years ago that I really started to see things gel together and, and saw this one taking shape. What was, do you recall a specific moment where you could tell that it now this is going to be a book? It wasn't a particular moment, but more an accumulation of things. I've been so uh, distraught and troubled over the levels of hostility and depression and sense of despair that people have. And it really felt like there's certainly a lot of hard, difficult things that we have to work through, but that there's still everything we need in this world for happiness and joy and uh, nurturing relationships. And so the, the book really was, you know, looking at all this stuff going on in the culture and, um, and an argument for the, for the goodness and a garden is an argument for the, the stuff in life that we want to hold on to. So when you've had a, a great day of uh, writing, how many hours of it were actually spent uh, hunched over the keyboard? When it's a good day of writing, it's a good chunk of the day. So if, I mean, it's, it's the type of thing that if I am not distracted by my day job and everything else, if I actually have the time to write, I can start, you know, before the sun comes up and then it won't be till dinner time that I, I realize that I've spent the whole day twiddling, twiddling away at the keyboard. So 10 hours <laughs> is not too far off. It no, that's like. not too far off. Um, I just don't get blocks of 10 hours to, to do it. It's, no, it's right. more often a couple hours here, a couple hours there. How do you experience, if you ever do, how do you experience writer's block? Um, I don't really experience writer's block. Uh, really, what I'll end up doing is I just start putting words on the page. And any resistance or block that was there, just once I start writing, you know, the first few things that are the first few lines might not be useful, but then you just edit those out once you get into the flow of it. Right. 
has it ever been necessary for you to go out into the world to specifically become more inspired? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I spend um, a fair amount of time riding public buses and, you know, just going to other countries and, and going and inserting myself in environments that are different than my everyday and just watching and observing and taking notes. And that a lot of those, that, that ends up generating a lot of thoughts and images that then make it into the, to the longer pieces. So you're writing about what you're observing it's not just for the atmosphere, it's actually for the observation part too? Yeah, there's there's some of both of it. Um, a lot of times the the things that that I write you won't recognize came from a particular place. Right. But th there was something about being in the place that opened up new pathways for me as I sat down and to do the writing. What's more important to you, the idea you want to convey or the language with which you convey it? I'll give them equal parts. It's I'm I'm very I've I've written more academic pieces which have the ideas in them and they don't feel personal. I don't feel as attached to them although I'm committed to the ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh so they're both equally important to me. I like the sound of the language, I like the way that the words come together, but the message is important as well. Right. To what extent do you feel that you've seen and understood something about life in the world that most people haven't seen or understood? I feel like I'm figuring it out along with everybody else. Um, I certainly think about things a lot. And I'm, I, I can remember back as far as, you know, when I was in first grade and there's an essay in the book about first grade and sinkholes mm -hmm. and Mrs. Flood's class. And I remember even at that point, just the 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 feeling of wanting to make sense of things and wanting to find out how things applied to to life to to life as we live it um not just for the interesting facts or for the engineering or whatever else but you know how does this relate to me as a human being and i've done that as long as i can remember don't you feel to some extent that you are in some kind of elevated position for you to be or for you to have the urge to share it in in book form and i don't mean that in a bad way at all because that's right. great if you feel that you've had epiphanies or whatever about the world and you want to share that with others but but i'm wondering if if there is that sense of elevation regarding the position from which you uh write these things well the act of writing for me very much is an act of discovering what i know um right anytime i write anything the first draft i'll write something and then there'll be something nagging at me saying uh, that's not quite right or uh, what about this and so i go in and I, and i tease it out more and i explore it more um uh, i'm thinking a lot in terms of the uh the messages of the book yeah. in terms of the value of love and kindness and forgiveness and all these things you you write about um like, don't you feel an, an inner need for these things to be said and to enlighten people even? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I do feel, um, I mean, I feel passionately about the ideas in the book. And I look at, um, you know, in my, my day job, I'm a lawyer mm -hmm. and um, I've negotiated over 10,000 agreements um, between 
parties that were disputing stuff. And ultimately, I feel like even we, we can have very different opinions about things. We can have strongly held beliefs. Uh, and yet we can still find ways to to respect one another and reach agreement. And so those are some of the themes that end up coming in out in the book is coming back to being kind with one another and love uh, and, and love and in, injecting more humanity into relationships. And I do, I feel absolutely passionate about um, that, that about that truth and about getting that out there. Right. I do feel like a lot of times it's just so easy to get caught up in our emotional response to things or, you know, our past histories or some of the difficult things that we go through that we don't see the evidence for the good that's all around us. And, and I really do feel like that that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is point to the, the evidence of, of what's out there and what's right before our eyes. Yeah. So in continuation of that, what's the best possible reaction that you could get or potentially have already gotten from someone who's read your book? I, I really feel a deep sense of gratefulness that I've been able to put the book out because of the response I've been getting from people. Um, the, you know, when I was first writing it, I'd be up at three in the morning and my wife and my kids were asleep and I was thinking, you know, what am I doing? Who's ever going to read this? And then as the book first got out there, uh, comments would come back in from strangers, people writing to me saying, it felt like you wrote this essay just for me, or I really needed this right now. Um, I remember I got some comments from someone in Iceland and I thought Iceland, I mean, how's, you know, here <laughs> I'm sitting in North Carolina and um, it's, you have no idea where the words are going to go and who they're going to reach. And so that's just been tremendously rewarding oh, yeah. uh, and it's made it all more than worthwhile. Oh yeah. You're advocating love and kindness in all kinds of different forms through your book. Have you never met a person for whom it seems to work out okay to be a little bit of an asshole? Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, really, it comes down to um, we've got multiple tools in our, our tool belt. Uh, what what I feel like, though, is that we often default too quickly to to anger and hostility and, and some of those other emotions that, you know, sometimes they're the appropriate response. Uh, but sometimes we can be even more effective and have a different response that's that's also appropriate. So, sure. And especially, you know, some of the negotiations I've done as a lawyer, um, you know, they're not, they're not all hugs and kisses either. So. Right. Do you agree with the statement then that nice guys finish first? Uh, yes. Uh, nice guys finish first, but nice guys also have certain um, pitfalls that they fall into and have to watch out for. So, um, How would you describe those? Yeah. So Adam Grant is a researcher at, at Wharton at University of Pennsylvania, and he um, he's done a lot of looking at people in organizations and you know, The summary of his research is, I'm going to butcher it, but the summary is that really nice guys finish first. They they tend to do better in the organizations. Their organizations do better. But it's the nice guys who also finish last um, if they they're not vi vigilant 
to to watch out for some of these things. Um, one of them is, you know, giving of your time um, that people will go out of their way to help other people. But there might be some people in the organization that then take advantage of that. Um, so they're both the, the they're representing the two extremes. They both do very best and the very worst. Yeah, that's you know, when you're looking at the big numbers. Yeah, that that tends to be how they fall right. out. They're both at both ends of the extreme. Surely there must be exceptions. uh uh, to this rule, at least uh, in my experience, it seems as if there are people who are not particularly nice people, but they are getting what they achieve. But is that then just a surface like on the inside, they actually don't feel very good, even though on the outside they look successful? I don't know how they feel on the inside. <laughs> but what, I mean, what would your suspicion be? Yeah, well, certainly, you know, sometimes cheaters win and sometimes, you know, people who take advantage, you know, win. But really, for, for me, what the takeaway is, especially looking at, at Anna Grant's research, is we don't we don't have to be that way. You know, a lot of times you'll get the uh, people will give an excuse and say, well, I'm I'm like this because it's it's business. That's nonsense because people can be extremely successful and thrive and get the things that they need and also treat one another fairly and be kind. Um, so really it comes down to more a matter of of character and how you want to live in the world. And you can be just as successful um, and I think happier if you're if you're you're putting good stuff out into the world. Right. OK. But certainly sometimes the bad guy wins. I, mean, that's, <laughs> right. yeah, that's a- I don't know. It's a cliche to name him, but someone like Steve Jobs, you know, I mean, was notoriously not a very nice person, um, but undoubtedly massively successful. Um. What's your take on him? Um, I don't know specifically with him. I know a lot of times people will um, have the outward uh, trappings of what we consider success, but often are pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, I know looking at lawyers in particularly, since that's you know what I what I do as a day job, lawyers have the highest levels of job dissatisfaction among any career, the highest levels of depression among any career. Uh, and that's even though, you know, most lawyers are, are well paid and they're so, despite all the lawyer jokes, they're pretty well respected. <laughs> um, you know, that there's, it's a, at times can be a corrosive profession. Right. Um, even if it, it, even if it looks from the outside, like everything's working out just fine. Yeah. So one, one of my personal uh, mantras is that people behave the way you let them behave. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do think that's true. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that in terms of affecting the culture, again, again, I think there's so much anger and hostility and despair in the culture right now. Um, it's up to all of us to stand up for what it is that that we want the culture to be and what we want the behavior to be, and um, and to encourage the the best that's in other people. Right. Um, to to you touched uh, on that a little bit already, but um, to what extent has your legal background informed your general philosophy on life? 
the the first thing the legal background has done is it's pushed me in areas that weren't particularly natural for me. Um, I was, I am, I'm more of an introvert and don't necessarily like conflict. And so what do I do is I go into to law. Um, and so that has, you know, pushed me and made me stronger in those areas. But what I've, what I've really been able to see is ways that I could bring my strengths into it and, and, and be authentic with my practice which involves, you know, when we're dealing with a, a matter of conflict, about really listening and trying to understand where the other person's coming from, I can usually find a way to meet what their needs are while also protecting the needs of, of my client. Um, and, and so that's informed my general philosophy in that, I mean, this is the way that we encounter life as people are bumping into each other all the time. And most often, there's a way that we can all figure it out and get along and actually have a whole lot of happiness in the in the middle of it as well. Right. How do you think it would have been uh, different if you were, say, a psychologist who also works with people and their problems and shortcomings and whatnot, uh, but they do so in a very different way than a lawyer does? Yeah, I've thought about that a lot. Uh, I, my original plan was to go into either philosophy or psychology, oh, right. and and for various reasons, I, I went into law instead. And then after practicing law for fifteen years, I went back to grad school in psychology. Um, but don't I'm I'm not licensed as a clinical psychologist. I, I I'm I don't I'm not trained in that. Um, and I, so I've thought a lot of. About what if I had gone towards psychology first? And I think really law has given me a good foundation. I, I think I'm better at what I do because of the path that I took. Right. I, I think if I'd gone straight into psychology, I don't know that I would have um would have been as prepared. Um there's a line in um Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov early in the book where um, the the youngest brother, Alyusha, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, um, he was considering becoming a monk. And the, the senior monk discourages him and tells him that he wants him to go out into the world and that the quote is something along the lines of that, you know, if he goes out um, and and exposes himself to the world and lives through that when he then comes back again his strength will be 10 times what it would have been is if he had jumped straight into the um you know that that profession mm -hmm. from the start and so i think the law has done that for me as i i went it's it's pushed me in a lot of directions and um made me better as i've come back to the psychology right cool so the final question here uh it took you roughly four years from start to finish to do this book, right? That's right. So what's the next book you have in you? What's that going to be about? Yeah, they've. I've got a couple going. And really what pushed me to finally finish this book is I'd already started the next one. And I thought, all right, I need to push this one across the line. Um, I've got a novel that I've started. Uh, we'll see if I can pull that off. Um, but the... But the other thing that I'm doing on the more kind of poetic nonfiction is around um, humor and humility um, that I, I think there's um, uh, 
I think we could use a whole lot more of both humor and humility in, in, in our relationships with people and our approach to the world. Cool. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Cool. Me too. That concludes my interview with Sean Doyle. This episode was recorded, produced, and edited by me, Mikkel Elbeck, and the theme tune was performed by Granddaddy's Jason Lytle. As soon as this episode is over, I think you should listen to their song, The Crystal Lake. I'm convinced you won't regret it. Thanks for listening to Tower Town Talks, and don't forget to subscribe. 